Welcome to the Key to All Mythologies podcast, where we celebrate the practices of slow reading and serious conversation among friends. I'm Elijah. I am Adam. I am Alex. I am Greg. And I am Paul. We hope you enjoy and we'd love to hear from you. Email us at keytoallmythologies at protonmail.com. Also, please visit our website, keytoallmythologies.com, which has a reading schedule if you'd like to read along with us. All right. So today we are discussing the Bhagavad Gita. And by way of introduction, I'm just going to give some context and do a little bit of summary. So the Bhagavad Gita is a part of a much larger epic uh, called the Mahabharata, which centers around a feud between two cousins who are vying for um, the northern part of India. Arjuna, who is a military commander, is about to enter into the battle between these two cousins. He represents one side. He suddenly becomes uh, riddled with anxiety about the consequences of what his actions are going to be. His charioteer, who is Krishna, which is the god in Hinduism, or one of the gods, I should say, begins talking him down off of this, out of this anxiety. The part we read for today, uh, Arjuna does not know that, that Krishna is God, but the reader is alerted to that. So my opening question for us today is... Krishna is attempting to disabuse Arjuna of his attachments to the material world because it is not the source of ultimate truth or reality. What then are we to make of the revelation of Krishna's teachings happening in a materially situated dialogue between Arjuna and an embodied Krishna? Was there any sort of passage in the text that prompted your question, Paul? I, I think I have one that we can start with, if that's right, Paul. Yeah, go for it. So this is book nine, stanza 11. Krishna says, deluded men disesteem me for dwelling in a human form, all unaware of my higher nature as great Lord of beings. I think kind of what you're getting at, Paul, is, well, there's like a, a lot of puzzles in this text. One is that... Arjuna is supposed to be detached from the world, but he's also supposed to act. And like the big question is, is why? And that's kind of what Krishna is sort of unfolding. And I think that's connected to your question. I sort of hesitate to make this comparison because I don't want to, I don't want to make a false equivalency. But if we think about, right, the Christian idea of incarnation, it makes it, the logic of that is that God created matter and said it was good. And so the idea of God being incarnated matter in matter is it is scandalous in one sense, but it's not scandalous specifically because it's matter, perhaps I'm over oversimplifying a huge complex debate, but here matter is illusory and nonetheless Krishna is, is incarnating in matter in order to have this dialogue. Is that, is that another way of putting your question, Paul? Yeah. I mean, cause like this, this text is, I mean, it's a drama, right? There's, there's like this dramatic dialogue going on without that dialogue. It looks like Arjuna would have, would have, he, well, the problem is right. Is that Arjuna wouldn't have performed his duty as his caste or my translation calls it a state dictates, right? A warrior, the someone in the warrior caste fights. That's what they do. And so what Krishna is trying to convince Arjuna of is to act in that duty but in a detached sense so that he doesn't get caught up in these passionate 
you know, feelings about the, the fact that he's going to be killing his kinsmen. But these truths are revealed through the, the voice of Krishna, this material display. And, I, it, it, and he says throughout that you can't, that tr true reality is not found in materiality. But it looks like here it kind of is. There's also a sense, though, the, the conversation between them is both embodied and disembodied. And here's, here's what I mean. I'm thinking about the larger framing device. Um, and at the very, like, chapter one, verse one, Dritt Arashta said, having gathered battle-hungry on virtue's field, the field of Kuru, what did they do then, Sanjaya, my sons and the sons of Pandu? So here we have a king on a battlefield. He asks his advisor, and then it says, Sanjaya said. And so the whole story of Krishna and Arjuna is in the speech of an advisor. And then when we get to Krishna's speech, he doesn't own the speech. He says, the great Lord said. And so he sort of displaces it yet another level. But he is somehow, he is that great Lord, but, but he's displacing it. So you have these two levels of displacement. So in one sense, it's embodied in that the voice is involved. In another sense, it's disembodied in that these characters are, in one sense, only the product of speech. Does that, I don't know, does that make any sense? <laughs> I mean, it makes sense to me in terms of reading it as a literary text. Do you think that those layers of meaning are intended? That's reading it like a work of fiction. I'm not entirely sure of that because it seems like, in some ways, it seems like esoteric knowledge but it's disseminated as a book. Like if the main character or one of the main tellers is the general um, and the, the second main teller is his advisor, that framing means that like this, this is somehow like the story is a dissemination of esoteric knowledge. And I think framing tales would be a really important part of a uh, tradition, which is somehow making esoteric knowledge exoteric because if that's the case, they have to establish that one, this knowledge is like true and drawn from like an, an ancient impossible source. But then at the same time, like I, I'm reading this continually as some kind of like explanation or exegesis of what revelation means in the Indian tradition. How do we come to know things? And I think for them, it's kind of the opposite of something more Western. And I, I don't know, I like, I'm still thinking about how to get my hands into like the language of it but right off the bat it's established right it's the stories that are removed just as this knowledge is at a remove partly because it's caste oriented right so arjuna as warrior caste gets a different slice of knowledge than a brahmin would and then god knows who's reading this but that person would probably also have to approach it from their caste level and so understanding that framing and layering seems like really essential to their society and therefore the telling of the book. The different castes have different duties, but the knowledge that they're seeking is the same. Not, not quite. The lowest caste wasn't even actually given access to this stuff. Higher caste was like expected to like fully immerse themselves. So I, I think it's a little tricky, but it does seem like this would be, like Greg's saying, this would be read differently depending on which of the top three casts you would approach it from. So I'm going to go to chapter 9, verse 32 and 33, which I marked because they seem to be a, a moment of political thinking in a way that felt 
that stood out from the rest of the of the reading. Krishna saying, for by taking refuge in me, O son of Pritha, even those who may be born of sinful wombs, women, members of the Vaisha caste, business caste, or even a member of the Sudra caste, servant caste, can reach the highest goal as well. How much easier for holy Brahmins, priest caste, and devoted royal sages, having come into this transient, unhappy world, to devote yourself to me. To me, that reads like an, an acknowledgement of that the, the necessity of these caste distinctions and the relative difficulties of reaching, let's say, enlightenment or revelation, but they're all seeking the same revelation and they all have the ability to get there. Well, and, and in a sense, Krishna's statements here and elsewhere are sort of subversive. They're subversive of the, the social order that's undergirded by Hinduism and they're affirming it at the same time. Because I think my inference, what I should say, Paul has alluded to this, none of us are experts and we are not qualified <laughs> to, to talk about this, but we can think about it humbly, we could say. It seems like Krishna is sort of undermining the idea that God is only for castes that have the leisure to study the Vedas. He says things along the lines, these people think that studying the Veda, they're going to find me, but they're missing me because they're worshiping in the wrong way, or they're sort of, they've mistaken the means for the end. And that's, that's a lot of interpretation I'm doing there, but that's sort of how I'm reading it. Nonetheless, he still finds the caste, he doesn't completely question the caste system either. Well, it certainly seems like a theology that teaches non-attachment would be ultimately a non-political philosophy or non-political theology. If you are supposed to act according to duty without being attached to the outcome of your actions and treat every action as a sacrifice to, uh, to the Brahmin. Yeah, well, and that was one of the things that was kind of motivating my question, because I, I once on one hand, I totally see that point. And it's so like, I just want to understand their relationship to material reality, right? Because, yes, you got to be detached from it. But at the same time, this caste system looms so large, and that feels so important and essential to the whole thing. And that does feel absolutely politically motivated and or at least socially motivated um and i'm not even sure that, that distinction makes sense here what do you mean yeah. when you say politically motivated there well because it's it's do your duty it's it's um get in line perform your function you know especially in this context with the war going on this is supposed to sort of realign the empire get everything kind of back in order so you, you don't read it as having a potentially subversive political message like Elijah was trying to say? Well, I, I thought this was, he meant subversive in the sense of like a corrective, like people do sort of follow like a bad interpretation of what Krishna is trying to get across here. And this yeah. is supposed to point it back, get the ship back on track, so to speak. Yeah, because he does say at one point that uh, when lack of duty outweighs the doing of duty he takes physical form and appears in the world right isn't that krishna honey well and there's also that line too this is the very first oh, the opening of chapter five krishna you approve the renunciation of actions and then again the practice of yogic discipline tell me unambiguously which is the better of these two the lord said the renunciation and the practice of yoga action lead to ultimate bliss 
but of the two, the practice of yogic action is superior to the renunciation of action. So it's like, I mean, yeah, I mean, Elijah, you kind of been saying this, but there's all these like little puzzles that need to be worked out. And I'm not, I'm not, I don't want to just say they're contradictory because on the surface they feel that way. But, but I, I mean, this does feel highly thought out. It's very complex. There's all these really subtle moves. So it, it seems like all these different uses of language are super intentional. And, you know, I, I want to take it really seriously. I want to look at seven because I feel like that's the the clearest kind of metaphysical statements. And I feel like kind of going around after we I'd clarify Krishna's identity makes the rest of it make a little bit more sense because I think we're kind of trapped in like a similar thing to like a Socratic dialogue where you can't tell if Socrates means what he says because you can't tell if he's he's from a higher place teaching to a lesser subject or if he's just deliberately you know, obscuring the truth. So uh, verse 11 and 12 uh, in chapter seven, I thought were really helpful. So my translation reads, might of the mighty I am, am I too, such as is free from desire and passion. So far as it is not inconsistent with right in creatures, I am desire, O best of Bharatas. But whatsoever states are of the strand goodness, and those of the strands passion and darkness too, know that they are from me alone, but I am not in them, they are in me. Actually, I'm gonna read on to 13. By these three states composed of the strands, these, all this world deluded, does not recognize me that am higher than they and eternal. So the way I was reading that is, there's this kind of like ebb and flow of, existence out from Brahman back into Brahman. What that means is that confusion occurs in these like intermediary states. So Brahman is, is confusion. Brahman is passion. Brahman is evil. Brahman is like, those are just emanations that Brahman takes back into itself as the story goes. And so I think a lot of the contradictions like we're seeing come from the point of telling where as a muddled and confused person, Arjuna can't make sense of Brahman, but that's not because Arjuna doesn't have the truth, but it's because he's standing in the middle of one of the exterior waves of Brahman as it, and it, as he washes, like it says, like, you know, I think it's like waves into the sea or something that delusion is taken away and the contradiction is clear, which then makes me think that the real purpose of this text is something more like direct experience rather than logic, where it's more like you're being pushed until an attitude or perspective falls away and then you're properly situated. I think that clarifies a lot of the action stuff. And that's why performing actions anyways is really useful because performing actions for, for no, no purpose other than themselves is part of the purification of that thing and apparently allows for direct experience of what's going on. And to me, like I was reading it, like it felt like everywhere was direct experience, direct experience, direct experience. And then I, that there's no way, other way to like look at this other than, oh, that's where it is. So some kind of like, like actual present revelation. I think that makes sense, but direct experience of what? Everything, right? Well, I think part of what the, I don't know if the word is paradox or what sort of um, a mystery or question that's being investigated, proposed by the text and Greg was getting at, I think, and his question is, the difference between 
being able to state something as a kind of like dry knowledge and like possessing it as a as a lived knowledge right i mean anyone can say like everything is one we're all there's a spirit that infuses the universe and we're all parts of it and we're all one and we know we sort of like we go to death and we're reborn based on our karma or whatever but there's a very deep and difficult to understand distinction between just being able to say those words and like knowing it as as some sort of phenomenological like fundamental reality along these lines can we look at book 6 46 verse 46 and i would be interested to see what your translations say so mine uses yogi which i think essentially translates to the the practitioner right because yoga is practice mm-hmm. and so here krishna says the yogi is superior to the ascetics and the learned and to those who perform the rites. So Arjuna be a yogi. I think this is like a pretty radical statement, right? So we have four groups here. We have the yogis who are people who are acting with detachment, I'll say provisionally. We have ascetics and what do ascetics do? They're people that have denied their desires, but they may not be acting in any positive way right they may not be actually inhabiting action but they've refused food sex drink we have the learned which is people who've read a lot of books who know a lot of that have a lot of the head knowledge and then the third group is those who perform the rites in other words the people who are inhabiting a, a religious practice a ritualized religious practice adam you had something to say oh no i was saying that the uh the host of this podcast are members of the third category but... <laughs> The learned. Uh-huh. Well, so I'll, I'll read it again and then and then ask if you guys think that this is capturing what Adam was just getting at. The yogi is superior to the ascetics and the learned and to those who perform the right. So Arjuna be a yogi. And then I'll read the next verse. Also of all the yogis, the one whose inner self has come to me, who worships me, rich in his faith, is thought to be the most steadfast. My translation has a has a selected glossary and yeah so yogi is a person who practices yoga but um yoga is derived from the verb to yoke and she defines it as having five interwoven concepts one the process of a difficult effort two a person committed to that effort three the instrument that person uses four the course of the action the course of the action chosen and five, the prospect of a goal. There's a lot happening in that word. It's interesting in that is, it feels like this use of yogi is antithetical to four of those five definitions. First off, the practitioner is renouncing their own being. So now action is no longer about the person who engages in the action. That would be confusion, right? Thinking you're different from Brahman would be creating sin. Secondly, the tool is also eradicated because the tool, the actor, and the goal are all one the same. Like maybe action itself is the tool or something, but that's even, even any kind of like instrumentalization is going to really interrupt that flow of one. Third, the goal thing has to be completely subjugated to the act itself. It seems like the antithesis of like a, a, an ordinary definition of action. So it just feels like all those categories go out the window in terms of this type of yogic practice, where it's like the undoing of that word, except for the fact that, you know, it's still enjoined to action. 
That was actually one uh, one thing that I thought was that I wanted to ask about the text, especially within terms of like goal oriented action. Arjuna's being extolled by Krishna to kill his enemies on the battlefield, but also to act without attachment to the outcome of the action. And I I'm, I'm I wonder if you think it's psychologically plausible or possible even to act in that way to you know imagine a course of events moving towards a planned outcome without being at all attached to or interested in the in the goal can you even plan without some kind of attachment so i think their answer would be unequivocally yes but the only way to make sense of that is to understand that thought does not constitute self and i think that's where the philosophy starts to make any sense because they distinguish between um on in chapter 6 11 and 12. so this is i think this is like both a psychological description but it's also metaphorical and it, it's ironic because it's describing an aesthetic but this is about a yogic so it says um in a clean place establishing a steady seat for himself that is neither too high nor too low covered with a cloth, a skin, and a kusa grass. So, right, so that's the aesthetic. He's just sitting still, not too high, not too low, not doing anything. But then they're fixing the thought organ on a single object, restraining the activity of his mind and senses, sitting on the seat, letting him practice discipline unto self-purification. So that's what distinguishes yogic practice from aesthetic practice. Even head, body, and neck, holding motionless, keeping himself steady, gazing at the tip of his own nose and not looking in any direction, right? So there's deliberate contradiction. You're looking at your nose, you're not looking at it. With tranquil soul, rid of fear, abiding in the vow of chastity, controlling the mind, his thoughts absorbed on me, let him sit disciplined, absorbed in me. The only way I can make sense of it is something like you establish concentration, you establish concentration, you establish concentration. And as you practice that, the thoughts separate from the self. The, the, just like, you know, the course of a river, the thoughts proceed into action, but there's no attachment with those thoughts. Whereas, you know, from our confused muddled perspective, we think self sets the goal for action. Whereas from this perspective, it's like if you hold yourself down into as few actions as possible, it becomes clear that you're actually not the one in charge of actions except for that you are the self and the self is the emanation of all things. Right. But the actions that are described are always, uh, yes, meditative kind of actions, which seem very different to me than fighting a battle. <laughs> I mean, that's, a, you know, I, mean, you, you, I don't see how you can, in a certain abstract sense, I do see how you might be able to enter a flow state in a battlefield and experience dark inertia of primordial primordial matter passing through you and moving you forward but to me that seems much more fanciful than than achieving that kind of state and during like meditation or you know just moments of like quiet repose I, I think that's really important to the premise of the book right like if Brahman is an actual fundamental reality it would have to be present in, in all things at all times and so I think it's situated exactly at this point in the epic because this is the least possible moment for, for something like yogic practice where he's despairing <laughs> at the fact he has to murder his own family members, right? So like, this is like 
the pinnacle of being as far removed from meditation as possible. And yet, like at this exact moment, the Godhead reveals himself to Arjuna. In fact, I believe I've heard that uh, after he, after they have this conversation, then Arjuna goes onto the battlefield and slaughters his family. He forgets what Krishna said and asks for Krishna to restate all that he was saying on the hilltop because he forgot it during the heat of battle. <laughs> so he's, he would be fulfilling his, his warrior's yoga, which is not a contemplative yoga. So as a warrior living out that proper practice, you can't possibly hold all those concepts since we've read nine chapters. There, there certainly are a decent number of concepts that Krishna threw at Arjuna. So I don't, I don't know how you're supposed to uh, impale or, or decapitate anyone when you, by thinking, you know, the will, maybe the will is the only friend of the self and the will is the only enemy of the self. That has a pretty good rhythm to it. You could, you could hack and slash to that. <laughs> I'm trying to think about we're we're using the word contemplation. I don't think that's quite right. In so, so if we think of like Western mysticism, Western mysticism is often dualistic. In other words, right, contemplation is something you do with your mind. Here it seems like the theology here is monistic, and it seems like there's not quite the same spirit matter dualism. And so I'm going to read a little from the text. So this is four, starting in 27. Others offer up all actions of the senses and of the breath to the fires of the yoga, of knowledge kindled self-restraint. Others offer material things, their discipline as sacrifice. And some there are who with keen vows sacrifice knowledge and self-study. Having restrained the double path of breathing in and out and focus on Focused on control of breath, others make this their sacrifice. Others who restrict consumption of food offer breaths into breaths. All these indeed no sacrifice, which has purged their impurities. And so we see something like those groups that we identified before, right? The student, the ascetic. And I'm looking at 29, and that seems to be the yogic practice having restrained the double pass of breathing in and breathing out and focused on control of breath, others make their sacrifice. Insofar as I understand Western mysticism, right? You need to still the body so your spirit can receive or can listen to God or whatever. But here it's something like, no, breathing really matters because there's not this distinction between spirit and matter. And somehow getting the, the techne, the art of breathing right, is actually really a spiritual thing. And breathing can absolutely be done by a warrior on the battlefield. Breathe in rhythm with your movements of your body as you fight against the enemy. It's not as if the concept of body and spirit and some distinction between them doesn't exist here, though. We do have those words. And chapter 3, beginning in verse 40... He says, the senses, mind, and understanding are said to be its desire's seat. Having obscured knowledge with these, it deludes the dweller in the body, the embodied self. Therefore, O bowl of Bharatas, Arjuna, having first restrained your senses, kill this sinful desire, the destroyer of theoretical and practical knowledge. The senses, they say, are superior to their objects, 
higher than the senses is the mind, but higher than the mind is the intellect, well, higher than the intellect is he, capital E, the self. Thus, knowing that which is higher than the intellect, sustaining the self with the self, O mighty armed, kill the enemy in the form of desire that is difficult to subdue. So we have like a, I think, a distinction there being drawn between the, uh, the senses, the objects of the senses, the mind, then the intellect, and then he slash universal self. And yeah, I think all those layers are present in every, in every person, but there does seem to be something akin there to Western mysticism we're talking about. I especially was thinking like Plotinus and the attempts to reach the one through ritualized meditation, exercises of meditation. I think there is, I think you're right, Adam. There, there is a kind of mind-body dualism, but it's, it seems that it's also couched in the statement that both of those are fundamentally illusion. And that makes it seem like this kind of like idealism that ought to be transcended, right? Like the, the priority of the mind is not because it sees more truthfully, but because it's harder to lose sight of. Like you're, you're, you're more trapped in idealism than realism on a metaphysical level. It's, you, can't, you can't avoid the mind in the same way you can avoid different objects. But that, that seems more of a statement, you know, at the human than anything else. Yeah, I think this makes sense. What I was thinking of is book seven, chapter 26, talks about duality twice in my translation. And, and I was wondering what that duality was. So Krishna says, although I am unmanifest, the foolish think that I have form, unaware of my eternal, incomparable, higher being. Hidden by my magic power, I'm not manifest to all. This foolish world cannot perceive me as birthless and eternal. I know those who have crossed over Arjuna and the living too. I know the beings yet to be, but I am known by none, whatever. Deluded by duality, so this is 27, deluded by duality, arising out of lust and hate, all beings in creation are deceived, O scorcher of the foe. But those whose sins are ended, those whose good deeds have brought their merits, undeceived by duality, they worship me with steadfast vows. And that word stuck in my head because I found that a very sticky point. But what does Krishna mean by duality there? And I think I sort of, I'm looking back at it, it's not so self-evident. When I first read it, I thought it was sort of a, a spirit matter dualism, but now I'm not so sure. <laughs> I guess I was thinking of it as um, the, the self, the universal self that is present in all things and then some sort of God that stands above that so that's the duality that's not you're not to be deceived by well and to pose 27 as a question what is the sort of duality that arises out of lust and hate is that hatred of the gods that's the question for me just just to just to throw it out there mine says desire and hate and the way i was taking it was like pretty straightforward is like there's some sort of set like separation at all like difference at all and like to, to get to enlightenment is to recognize that separation, rec recognize subject, object, recognize mind, body, all these kinds of dualities we can talk about. But to Krishna, and, and I don't even think thinking is the right term there, but to turn one's attention to or something along those lines, 
is to see that duality kind of fade away and see like the intimate connectedness of everything. I don't know, something like that. I can't, I can't say it without just making it cheesy. <laughs> no, um, you're right that you can only lust after or hate something if you don't recognize it as part of yourself. Well, I, I think this is almost a metaphysical ontological claim. It reminds me a lot of like Aquinas saying that love and hate are the first modes of existence. Right, like the, the encounter a human being has toward an object is not primarily knowledge, but desire. Like it seems like he's sketching out like a, like a philosophic psychology of the way we encounter other beings and that duality of love and hate or desire, hatred, you know, however attraction, repulsion, however you wanna like lay it out. Once that or like that mode, that like process creates the world of beings and so I think what he's instructing is go to the root of the process, interrupt the love-hate relationship that you attach and create every being with, and you'll no longer experience the other beings as other. You'll experience them directly as, as the flow of Brahman. So I think it's just like a practical guide, like kill the, this process in the mental chain, and there's no more experiencing of the manifold. So it's not so much that maybe matter is illusory and the spiritual world is real, but rather beings are illusory and being is real. That's what you're suggesting, Greg? Yeah, I think if I'm inclined to read it, I like obviously this book's been interpreted a million different ways, but I, I'm definitely inclined to read it like very non-dualistic, very like there is one being, that's fundamental reality. And that being is not going to be other than the illusion, like somehow even the illusion is the being itself, but that, that, that like the sea, everything will flow back into that being. And so that's why this is all happening, right? Like the, the, this, is, this is one of those moments where the being is taking the world back into itself. Wait, this particular moment, given like the war and like the heightened state of things or just any moment in general? like this, this particular moment, like sure at any one moment could be an opportunity for revelation of Brahman, but yeah, this, this seems like a moment saturated with Brahman revelation. Yeah. And cause, cause a lot of this is because Krishna is the annihilator of the world. So whenever there's like one of these big cataclysmic events, that's Brahma, like basically creating a moment for himself to recreate the world or something like that. I've... That seems about right. Can the warring factions be taken as like a analogy or or metaphorical representation of duality, the one side and the other? And that, that and that in some ways that's why Arjuna like has to participate, right? It's because like I don't want to say it, this is the thing I kept tripping myself up with. I kept wanting to say whatever happens doesn't matter, but that doesn't seem quite right. It's just that whatever is going to happen is going to happen or something like that. And, and so it's not, it's needless to get your passions all um, in a frenzy or something like that. This episode of having the internal conflict for Arjuna is worthwhile because perhaps he can recognize this, duality playing out before him on the battlefield and yet the duality can't be dissolved unless he joins the battle that's so it's an interesting uh paradox so given what we were what you three were just saying so what do we make of when krishna seems to describe himself in paradoxical or directly contradictory ways or seems to well okay, i'll just read i'm gonna read two passages of one's chapter seven 
verses eight and nine. So he says, I am the taste in water. I am the light in the moon and sun. I am the syllable Om in all the Vedas, the sound in space and manliness in men. I am also the pure fragrance in earth and the radiance in fire. I am the life in all beings and the austerity and aesthetics. And then chapter nine, starting in verse 16, he says, I am the right, I am the sacrifice, I am the offering to the dead, I am the sacred chant, I alone am the clarified butter, I am the fire, and I am the oblation. I am the father of the universe, the mother, the ordainer, the grandfather, the object of knowledge, the purifier, the holy syllable Om, and the threefold Vedas. So in the first passage, he says, I am the radiance in fire. And then in the second passage, he says, I alone am the fire. Does that go to this question of the duality we're trying to describe? I mean, so he's saying, I am, I alone am the fire, and I also am the radiance in fire. Of course, if you are, you know, if you are the whole fire, you're also the radiance in the fire. So it's interesting that in one passage, Krishna would select something like the essence of fire or the essence of these phenomena and say like, I am the thing that unifies them through this cycle of death and rebirth and like makes them what they are. Cause that seems to somewhat like, like a platonic form. And in the second passage, he's, it's, be, it's beyond that, right? It transcends that kind of thinking and says, you know, I am, I am all parts of the fire. I, I, I am the fire. I am, I, so I emanate and I am all of reality. I'm not just like the essence or the, the, the filament. I am the whole, the whole thing. Adam, could you read your verse, ni verse 19 again? Uh, in chapter nine? Yeah. yeah. Verse nine, I did not read verse 19 in chapter nine. I read 16 and 17. Okay, At the, in 19 and nine, he, he says, I radiate heat Arjuna. I hold back rain and let it go. I am immortal life and death. I am being and non-being. I am both being and non-being. Yeah. yeah, That's that was a very interesting line to me. But we can come back to it. Greg, what did you have to say? No, actually, that was kind of useful. The only thing I wanted to add is that the passage you read in 16, where he says, I am the fire. My translator renders that as the fire of offering because all those steps, the ritual act, worship, offering to the dead, herb, the sacred butter, all, all those are aspects of the rituals. So I think he's actually like, this is kind of nitpicky, but I think he's drawing attention. I am the fire of religion. In the religious act, every aspect of that act doer receive sacrifices me um and so like like fire rituals were really common and so like every time somebody does a fire ritual that's brahman right so i think that first passage you read is all about emanations everything emanates and becomes like its true self via brahman so like the sun and the moon which are ultimately just light to the world what is that that's brahman right or um, the aesthetic, like the virtue of everything in a really almost Aristotelian sense is Brahman in, the, in that first set of readings. Then you, you kind of have this transfer over to the second sense where you have a much more qualified religious statement, like almost like Brahman is the recipient and the doer of every religious thing. All the gods are just like, like the Brahman cult has just subsumed all the other cults into Brahman. Right. And so I think that has both like a religious connotation in the sense of like, yeah, literally Brahman is the only God, but in a deeper connotation, Brahman subsumes the, 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 the essence of 
religious practice into himself. And somehow Brahman practices religious practice himself. It culminates in Elijah's statement, right? The, the existence and non-being of, or the being and non-being of everything. That's where it's going to get really picky. And I'm sure like there's a million different schools of theology on what that line means. The way I was reading it, especially in light of the earlier things, it seems like when he says non-being, it's like I'm the immortality and the death. Like somehow Brahman always exists, but it causes the death of, of all things in order to further assume itself. Like immortality stands more real in this world of perpetual play of death and life. And so like life is more live or like life itself is more live in that all, all things that are not it or are it, you know, or in it or something are dying. So the death is brought upon by Brahman's own immortality, which is why that is Brahman. Even in heaven, you die eventually. Mm-hmm. Greg, do you have a sense of what the difference between Krishna and Brahman is? Yeah, it seems like Krishna is an avatar to me, where Krishna has voice and can speak Brahman, but um, and, and so definitely seems to have attained enlightenment. But what that what avatar means, Brahman can't be Krishna except in the sense that Brahman is also everything else, right? Like Arjuna is, I think, is going to be just as much Brahman when Arjuna is no longer Arjuna. Arjuna is Atman, right? Like whenever you're Atman, you're Brahman. And so, and Atman's that self, right? That's that secret hidden self. So it seems like Krishna as the person Krishna is somebody who, who has practiced enough or something to be a proper sage. So when Krishna gives voice, it's Brahman talking, which is why Arjuna has that line way earlier where he's like, wait a minute, Krishna, you said that you were the first one to come up with all these teachings, but you're after all these people. How is that possible? And then Krishna says like, well, that, that was me too. You know, when you enter that stream or something that flow, you see yourself as all things Vishnu reborn or something might mean that he's a more literal thing than even like the ordinary person who, who reaches up to that selfhood. I don't know. For the offering and the fire line, is it possible to interpret based on other claims that Krishna has made about uh, the the class who performs rituals, but they don't have the right sort of standpoint that maybe if you're just going through the motions of a ritual, you only see the fire that consumes the offering as the physical fire right there before you, but you're not, you're no longer thinking of it as the eternal Godhead manifest consuming the offering you know the god itself consumer consuming the offering i take it that that the point of the teaching of krishna whoever you are you are meant meant to recognize the totality of things unified in the eternal godhead i, th- I think that's why it's like this text is both subversive and not because it, it affirms the existing order of things absolutely, because Brahman is the totality. So whatever the existing order would have to be taken up as is, right? So the, the, set, the rituals don't stop once everybody realizes that Brahman is giving the ritual and receiving the ritual at the same time, <laughs> because the, the, what's already there is Brahman. And so it would, it would be kind of absurd to 
take that away. But at the same time, knowing that it's Brahman takes the kind of needfulness out of the ritual. Cause like before, right, you got to get your fire God going. So you'll, you'll make a sacrifice to it and you gain power that way. And then you could exercise that power on other things. Whereas now there's that like solid course through that, that doesn't, doesn't seem to have the same meaning. So I'm going to take us in a slightly different direction. A couple minutes ago, we were talking about the duality and I'm sort of been stewing in my mind, thinking about if the two armies are a, a duality that is sort of based on a misunderstanding of love and hate, wouldn't the next logical step for them to be to put down their arms and realize that they're all one and not kill each other doesn't seem to be the direction that the poem is heading. Thinking especially about the line that Greg was saying that it's it's not just fire, but it's the fire of sacrifice and sacrifice is important to this epic. I wonder to what degree Arjuna needing to fight in the family, fight in the battle against his family is not unlike God commanding in the Hebrew scriptures, God commanding Abraham to sacrifice his son, Isaac. In other words, God's command to for Abraham to sacrifice Isaac in Bhagavad Gita terms would be an action without attachment, right? That's, that's meant to teach Abraham something rather than just be, you know, wanton, unnecessary violence or something. What do you think about that? I, I think that's right. The only difference is that in the Bhagavad Gita, he, he does it right? Like you go through and you slaughter them. And that's because they aren't going to, well, one is they don't have essential substance, right? Like they're, they're just as illusory, right? Like, like somehow Atman, the self gets embodied and it just keeps getting embodied, keeps getting embodied. And so you can slaw these things away, you know, just like shell, 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 hack it off. So like the, that's like the material description, but like the material description is also always illusioned. So like, you know, they could call off the war, but that would be just as an illusion thing as going through the process of fighting the war. Like there's as little intelligence or knowledge to be gained from fighting it as there is from not fighting it, except that the duty's already set. And so his, if he like acts on this duty, he doesn't have to make a decision that's oriented towards some other future. Like it's, it seems in some ways like this is the annihilation of the premise should and the replacement with the premise I do. But don't you think that Arjuna slaughtering his beloved family members is specifically an, an object lesson in non-attachment? Because it's a, you mean, because it's a more uh, pointed and difficult test than just to kill some unknown person that, that's my hypothesis yeah i will say on the question of why if the if what we're aiming to learn here is the essential unity and oneness of all things why don't they lay down their arms and love each other <laughs> instead of kill each other um, when i read this the second time i was really struck by this, these lines um, in chapter two where um, when we first get this argument for it's why Arjuna should engage in battle. It should be that because he should act without being attached to the outcome of the actions and everyone is already dead already. And you know, the cycle of life and birth is, is infinite and there's, there's no, uh, there's no essential self to be killed. 
but then another argument that's used here is, uh, this is the beginning of verse 31. Even if you consider your own dharma, you should not waver, for there is nothing better for a kshatriya, member of the warrior caste, than a battle in accord with dharma. Happy they are, O son of Pritha, who find unsought such a battle, an open door to heaven. But if you fail to engage in this battle in accord with dharma, then abandoning your own dharma and fame, you will incur sin. Moreover, people will ever recount your disgrace to an esteemed one disgrace is worse than death. The great chariot warriors will think you fled from battle out of fear and you will come to be held lightly by those who once held you in high esteem and your enemies deriding your strength will slander you with so many unspeakable words. What is de indeed is more painful than that? Really seems like an attachment <laughs> and a very personal one at that. Those lines really stood out to me as strange when I read this again. Yeah, my translation of the rhetorical question what could be more painful than this and in other parts of the text pain and pleasure is given as an example of one of the dualities that is meant to be overcome spiritually but again i i feel like that's i think the reason that that strikes us as contradictory is again because we're so stuck in like dualistic modes of thinking if you do really take this like Brahma being all kind of thing and everything's just kind of emanating out and back into it, it makes it less that like, like the desire to, the, that desires need to be killed language strikes a different tone, right? I don't think, I mean, again, like he, he's also not advocating for asceticism. There's a certain kind of lack of attachment, but it's not as if you can't just, it's not as if you can't enjoy certain things. It doesn't seem to me. I think it's like the fixation of it or something like that. I, I, I'm really struggling with like the word, the way to word it, but there's something about like the way in which you, or like the significance of it in your life that that is the problem rather than the actual like happening of it. Well, yeah. I don't know, what do you guys think? Yeah, I think, two, I think there's two other things going on here too. So the first is that that first passage that Adam read is before Arjuna asked kind of the ultimate question, which is, what does the person of complete concentration possess? So in that first kind of battle, he's like wavering. He doesn't, he's like, I can't do this. So he throws down his weapons and weeps. And then Arjuna chastises him. But I think what distinguishes Arjuna as worthy of this later speech and teaching is that he keeps asking questions. After the enlightenment, he's interested in more than the glory fame stuff, even though that seems to kind of pull him in there. I think this is all tied to like the second thing, which is I want to say is like immediacy is so essential to this work. So the, the lay down arms thing is not an immediate solution and therefore worthless. It's not worth pursuing. Whereas all good Dharma is somewhat and somehow centered in immediacy. So if you're a Kshatriya warrior caste, you're born into it, which means that killing people is an immediate reality for you. And so you can do it without attachment. And so like being centered in the immediacy of the event allows you to act without attachment. But if you start to leave the immediacy of the event and project like, oh, this is what I desire, a world where there is peace, or oh, wouldn't it be nice if, or like all those things sort of creep in when you leave the, the central like channel of Dharma. And so if you were to say things like, well, why do, why do we have to fight at all? He's leaving the immediacy of the battle and 
is therefore full, completely full of attachment. He's doomed. He's not going to find any kind of non-dual reality. But because he's situated this battle, you just got to do it. And so wherever you find yourself, that's where you act out of because the acting out of it's not, not the real thing. It's the how you act. How do you play immediate? Do you play immediate as the being who is wanting something from this conflict? Or do you, or do you play it as no being, not wanting conflict, not anything? Can you say, I don't, I don't think I quite understand what you mean by immediate because the immediacy thing strikes a certain like rashness tone, like where you just kind of like respond, do what, you know, like you're just doing stuff and like, yeah, it's like centered somehow around your duty, but like a lot of this text is about breathing, slowing down, like being centered, you know, like having a sort of like peacefulness about you. So I guess the immediacy language is just kind of throwing me off a bit. Yeah, that makes sense. I'm thinking, gosh, there's, I forgot where, where's the big passage where he talks about how to do sacrifice? Cause that, that was where I really got, started to get thinking about the immediacy thing, because it seemed like he's rewriting. I think it was in the action thing. He's like, how do, how do I do right action? I felt like that's where it was really clear where you're drawing yourself into a practice and the practice provides all the goal-oriented thinking for you so that you don't have to supply that. Like, I think part of the reason, like, mind is a chaos. A mind, an individuated person is trying to invent the universe. And that's why um, the mind is errors so much. Like, the mind wants something other than what is. And in wanting other than what is, you've abandoned Brahman. So you have to stop wanting anything else other than what is which is why I keep using this word immediacy because you're not looking for a world outside of this world. You're strictly looking for, and this is why I think it's like tied to revelation. Like the revelation is nothing other than exactly what's happening. Um, and that's why sacrifice is, is, is so important and tradition is so important because it's the given happening. And the whole dialogue starts because Arjuna is worried that He's going to upend the caste system by killing all these people. He's like, who's going to raise these families? Like, are, are in the future, our world is not going to be intelligible by my actions here. And Krishna says, don't worry about it, right? Like, you, you don't have to think about the future of the caste system at all. Your, your dharma is to act right now. So go out and do it. And, and like, apparently, I think later on in this text, it does wipe out the whole society. Like, it triggers the doom age, which is the one we all live in now. <laughs> in the doom age <laughs> i knew it <laughs> i mean i think that makes a lot of sense but on that account what is the maybe it's not possible to answer this based on what we read and i don't really have a sense of how this works in hindu theology but why is the true nature of reality so hard to discover do you see what i mean and why is it so why is it hidden and why is it so rare for that real full knowledge to be achieved as I think there are answers to that in like Christian and other theologies that I know more about, but I don't see what the answer is based on what you've been saying about this text anyway. And if that's a question that we can't answer, then we can go on. I mean, I, I think the short answer is that we're blinded by our desires and those are the things that keep us from seeing how things really are. Right, but why would Brahman do that to us? <laughs> If it makes sense, maybe it doesn't make sense to talk about Brahman doing things in that way. Yeah, because again, I don't, I think that's like presupposing that Brahman is like the sort of 
the Jewish God, right? Like all good or something like that. And I think Brahman is not, he's, he's not that duality before between good and bad. Yeah. And, and Brahman is impersonal. And, and I don't even know if there's indication in the text that Brahman designed the world. It might just be rather that this is the way the world is. Yeah, he's, I mean, he says that he, I can't remember where, but he alludes to there being like no beginning. Because then again, I think that's another duality. It's another beginning and end sort of stuff. Mm -hmm. yeah. Maybe another way to say that is, another way to sort of, to reframe my question in a way we can think about more usefully is like, to what degree do you think we, we to what degree do you think, the, not us, of course, but like the, the readers at the time would have read this as image and metaphor and symbol? And to what degree that they would they have read it as some kind of Krishna as a literal avatar or manifestation of of a, a creator or a god of some kind? For me, the way I'm looking at this is it, it seems so centered. You know, like I, I've got like like what's the background to this culture, right? So with the with the Hebrews, it was God is like the mystery or the some kind of like hiddenness is built into being, and that's what they're uncovering. Here it feels like the Hindus are completely interested in direct experience and everything hangs on that. And I think that's actually why practice is so emphasized and why this book is so hard to read. You know, we're, we're, we, we five cannot at all approach this book because we have literally no practice. Whereas it seems like what he's saying is you have to build concentration into yourself. And as you sustain and build concentration, then you start to notice things. And what do you notice? You notice how to separate beings from your hatred and desire of them and when you start doing that you start to notice that you're not there in, in all those beings where are you you're the eternal supreme self above time itself and so the metaphors the story like all of that exists as a heuristic to aid the practice of concentration and direct experience but that's weird one because i think absolutely this has to have like a historical component because again like we're taking society for granted. We're taking rituals for granted. The world is taken for granted because this is, we're not oriented at anything other than what the world is. And then two, so it, we have to use metaphors, not because they're fundamentally true, because, but because metaphors might be ways to push open the doors of direct experience, where if I just hold you out long enough, you might have revelation. And I think it seems like their, their first supposition Everyone is confused. No one knows what they are experiencing directly. And then from there, they dial it back to Brahman. Yeah, that's, that's interesting, Greg. I'm thinking of the Kafka. There's this Kafka quote uh, where he says, uh, a book must be a pickaxe to break up the frozen ice inside of you. But I also think, and maybe this is too fine a distinction, but I think if we think about the religious purpose of this text, it's it, it may bring about revelation, but it's only useful insofar as that revelation leads you to practice, right? This is not a Gnostic vision. It's a yogic vision, which means that in a, in a certain sense, this book is a, if, if we're at all right, which is dubious in what we're thinking, the book is only useful insofar as it nudges you towards the practice that it's describing. Knowledge of the practice is not sufficient. Yeah. I think that's why so many of the metaphors are about like monks or priests sitting calmly is that like actually the people who are reading this book and thinking about it led lives much more like that 
than the warrior cast. Like in some ways, this book is like a training manual or or something that starts a way to like calm yourself after you get lost, like in, in, in a meditative practice or something, you, you'd have a, a permanent object that you can use to remind yourself of right practice that you can just like kind of return to and then go back out into practice. Like there's that great line about how <laughs> knowing the Vedas is about as useful as having a water tank when the whole world is drowned. Um, <laughs> where it's like, oh yeah, the author of this does not think any of these words are at all meaningful, right? Like, like this is this is just an actual heuristic. But like, like how it works is 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 going to be tied to metaphor, is going to be tied to religion, is going to be tied to politics, which just seems very bizarre. That makes sense, and and uh, I think that's one of the reasons that pointing out like paradoxes or contradictions feels beside the point like we can we can find them and we can do it and i'm sure well it just it, yeah it just feels like you're sort of approaching something with just the wrong set of tools i guess yeah i think the emphasis on on practice and experience is important and i mean that goes back to what i was saying before about the difference between being able to state something as a fact and like experiencing it as a fundamental reality right and i do think that that in, in, in all cases that involves having direct experience of the thing in question. There's always that gap between intellectual knowledge and, and knowledge in the larger sense. So yeah, that, and I, I do feel like this text is really dwelling in that, with that question. But the, the strange thing that this brings up for me is the fact, and this goes back to what you were reading a couple minutes ago, Adam, about how if you don't fight in battle, everyone will, will heap scorn on you. So on the one hand, right, knowledge of experience and knowledge of what is real is very hard to come by. Very few people figure it out. On the other hand, it really seems like duty in this text. So if we ask duty to what? It's duty to the gods, but it's also duty to your socially defined role, right, as a warrior. So in other words, you end up in this weird place where you're like, yeah, society, nobody knows what's real, but society has all the right answers and people are just basically ignoring them and they just need to do what their socially defined role is, which, yeah, I find that strange. And I think sort of in the Western tradition, there's like a, we're very comfortable with the idea that your duty to God and what society wants you to do are often opposed and maybe always, right? That's sort of the de facto, at least in, in Christianity, in the modern Christianity, modern, you know, in the modern age, that's sort of uh, the, the default. And it's also, I think, what we see in the Gospels. And so I'm sort of struggling to make sense of this. <laughs> Stop there. There wouldn't be any, like nothing that we've read so far, at least, would suggest there's any kind of like ethical, there's any kind of transcendent ethics beyond what, what situation duty has placed you in, right? I mean, if you really are living as Greg has described, then that doesn't even really make sense to think about the world in that way, right? I mean, you have to think of yourself as a self whose actions do or do not correspond to a set of ethical standards that seems to require you to lapse in your practice of, of the yoga. Well, I think there's that line where he says, all action ends in truth, right? Or all action ends in knowledge like that of seeing the truth. Like I think, duty is so important. And I think it is really important. Like, I think 
there's no way to, to read this text closely and walk away from it and say, oh, I can do whatever I want. Like that seems not true. And I think that's part of like the frustration of like modern, um, modern mindfulness movements and stuff is like that they seem to, they abstract it from the tradition. And here tradition is so essential and so useful, not because it's fundamentally true, tradition is a means to an end, but it's such a convenient means because it takes the world as so much for granted. So and I think that's like what's really important about it. What's, what's amazing about having such an evolved religion and tradition is all of your actions all the time are completely predetermined, right? Your caste is your job, but you don't have to choose your job. You, right? you, you just live out the role that's given to you. you. You perform the oblations every day. You're material really rewarded for that. Like all of those set things allows you to practice attending to each of those things without any anticipation of what's to come. And I think that's why it's such, if you remove that piece, this book doesn't make any sense anymore. Or like, I don't know, that's my, that's what I'm tempted to say right now, because th there's no way in like our society to go about day to day and engage in that kind of ritual practice because our society is set up where agency is so important. And so choice is so important because like we've just prefaced agency and choice in everything in Western society. But here, agency is literally meaningless, right? The, the one moment that looks like authenticity or agency, Arjuna throws down the hammer, he's weep, you know, the bow is like, oh, big mistake, <laughs> go back and kill him. He says, yes, sir, <laughs> you know? <laughs> Um, <laughs> yeah, I was thinking that this is a, it's interesting to compare that to Achilles, right? And how, how the different directions these things go in. It's like a, yeah. a, a very different set of responses to a warrior asking why he should, why he should fight. <laughs> yes, yeah. uh, I, uh, I looked at the Iliad before meeting tonight and uh, I noticed a line after Patroclus dies where Achilles wishes, I have it. Achilles says, I wish all strife could stop among gods and among men and anger too. It sends sensible men into fits of temper. And yet a few lines later, Achilles resolves to go find Hector and kill him. He, he really doesn't have to have a god manifest itself to him to get him to go do his duty, perhaps his karma his Greek karma, but Arjuna was raising the, the same kind of point about why should we rise up in anger against each other when we are related to each other? You know, we're tribes that have common ancestry and Krishna is saying, that's not the point. Yeah. It's also though, it's interesting comparison because what, what sparks Achilles from sitting out from the battle is a, a harm that's done to him. Whereas Ajuna considers other people, he considers the society, considers his countrymen. And um, anyways, that I think that's an important difference too. Because to get Achilles back into the battle that fail are consider your countrymen, consider society. And he's like, no, I don't fucking care about any of that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. There's this personal loss and grief, pain. Right. Yeah, no, that's a good point. Yeah. And, and, and I, the, the funny th thing about reading this, I remember it, when I read this in undergrad, 
the 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 whole time i was just like angry at krishna because i was like clearly arjuna is like this moral guy and he's just like so authentic like you said greg and then and krishna just like rips that apart the entire time obviously it was naive but at the same time it's like as a westerner that that reaction feels very genuine i mean certainly as a as a liberal democrat i mean i mean those in not in the specific case, but in the sort of just a person who is a beneficiary and a proponent of democracy. Like it's hard to read this and not feel like there's something stultifying and and like frustrating about it. But I do think that Greg is right that that's that's a very anachronistic um, way to look at it. I mean, I've <laughs> it's funny actually. I people will sometimes talk about the um, oppression and horror of arranged marriages but I think there's something kind of appealing about it. It's like, you just, you get set with someone, you don't have to think about it at all. You don't have to make any choices. You're just there and you're like, this is, you know, I have to find the greatest amount of happiness and satisfaction and meaning in this arrangement that I can, you know, this is the what's best for all of us. And then it like locks you into a social, like a cohesive social situation, you know, your duty is clear. I mean, I can, I can see why other people would find it appealing. Yeah, and the the illusion that it couldn't have been otherwise is probably strangely comforting in a certain way. Right, you're not tormented by lost possibilities of better situations. Right? I think we're now starting to like really be able to hit on Paul's opening question of why does this take place in the materiality? In some senses, Brahman can be felt as most universal and most pervasive if the materiality is utterly given, utterly fixed, and like utterly nihilistic. The act of going out and killing your family is a properly, and like Arjuna recognizes this, right? He's like, this is going to demolish all of my values, the whole caste system. This is, and, and, and I think it does. I, like, I, again, I, I, know, I haven't read the whole Mahabharata, but like the, it seems like the rest of it just is the extinction of this era. And to affirm the like reality is most transcendental at its most gritty and material is I think a really interesting thing that like, and, and I think they have to say something like that if they want an all pervasive Brahman or if they, yeah, I guess want it doesn't seem right. Cause it seems like they're again, so focused on direct experience. So they encounter or, or, or they revel in, in Brahman at every moment and so the, like the most compelling story is going to be the one most situated in material not some like far off ideal well and and i'm thinking too maybe let me try to work this out i'm thinking too like if you were trying to teach somebody not to be greedy you could say well just don't seek out a high paying job right you could advise for inaction like don't try to accumulate a bunch of money at for yourself but I think psychologically, right, somebody could have nothing and still be entirely greedy. In, in some ways, the attachment to material is not, the attachment to material things is not, it cannot be solved merely by a mental change, but somehow that mental change has to be affected through some sort of material means or material encounter. Taking greed just as one, one attachment it's, it seems like that might apply sort of writ large. Can you restate that maybe I, I sort of lost the train of what you were saying there? 
So I was sort of trying to make an analogy. And I said, if you were trying to teach somebody to not be greedy, right, to not feel greed, you could advise the path of inaction. In other words, you could say to this person, well, just don't seek a high paying job, don't seek to accumulate things. But of course, we all know sort of psychologically, somebody could have nothing and still be afflicted by greed, right? So in that case, inaction would not cure them of greed. It seems like some sort of positive action. I don't know if it would be giving away everything or what, some sort of positive action, which would involve you in the material world in matter in some way would be necessary in order to affect that change of mind instead of conceptualizing it as a mere matter of willpower, which I don't even know what the status of will is in this text, but I'm just saying generally. Does that make maybe a little more sense? Yeah, so sort of a, um, almost like a self-help manual or a, like a psychological uh, a recipe for a psychological relief. <laughs> Well, but it's because by simply renouncing the the impulse, the desire, you you still maintain the duality, right? And that's the problem. So if you if you can get the duality itself to fall apart through action, through adherence to your duty, mm-hmm. that's the that's the path out, right? Of the of that duality, which uh, leads to the very strange idea that this text, at least in terms of virtue, is actually more Aristotelian than Platonic. Oh, yeah. yeah. I was thinking of Aristotle all over the place. I don't want to westernize it, but I just see Aristotle like right. everywhere. Like the whole account of the God being virtues and everything, the like the prime mover vibes I got a lot of. I don't know. It seems like there's this late Greek thing and, and in, Indian part where the, the philosophies really skim right next to each other for a little bit and then depart wildly again. Well, that's partly why I asked the question I did is because like on a very surface level way of reading this text, it's like, oh yeah, just, you know, renounce materiality and you'll be, you'll be good. <laughs> Point your mind towards, towards the God or whatever. But it's like when you really start working out these, you know, apparent contradictions, it's like, yeah, I mean, I think we, we've done a pretty decent job of detailing it here, but materiality and lived experience, action, all these things like really reemerge as like of ultimate importance. Yeah, and I think that's the that's part of the the connection with Aristotle as well. Aristotle really understood the power of habit and ritual. And I think one of the things that makes has made this philosophy so appealing to people in the second half of the 20th century is that like our society is just there's no structure for meaningful habit and meaningful ritual right now. Like with everything everything that we had we have attached that to in the past is kind of is gone or degraded at least and people are really hungry for that. What's what's the Marx line? All that all that solid melts away. Yeah, oh, solid melts into the air. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That seems like a pretty good place to wrap it up. No. Yes. Um, yes. Thank you. Thank you for joining us this week on Digital <laughs> Mythologies. Uh, uh, next uh, next week we'll be reading the second half of the Bhagavad Gita. Again, we'd love to hear from you at the key to all mythologies at protonmail.com. Well, that's so funny to you, Elijah. Like, I'll save the detail if you want. But... I know, I love it. I love it. Every time, every time Elijah <laughs> chuckles. <laughs> or you I, can see him pushing yeah. down the chuckle. <laughs> I think it's great. I think it's yeah. great.